Great God, we do believe you exist and that you reward us who seek you. You say that if if you want if we want to find you, we'll find you. If we want to connect with you, you're there. So help us uh, to want you. Help us to draw near to you and to find you and to see you and to know you a little better this morning. Amen. What is a truly great life? What do you what do you want for you? You know, at the end of your life when you look back, uh, what do you want people to say about you? If you've got kids, what would you want your kids to say about you? Interesting, isn't it? We um, we all have a vision of ourselves and a, of the good life. It's often very sophisticated, but often it's unconscious. It's just something we've adopted and inhabited. And we adopt and inhabit and absorb this picture, this vision of what a great life is, how we should live. We just absorb it from our family of origin, from our culture. Uh, but is it is that right? So one of the things we're doing, one of the things that, that we're going to do this morning is, and we, and we do really every week here as a community of faith, is we stop and we, we, we recalibrate our expectations and our vision and then our execution towards that vision on what is a good life. And it's really important because I don't know if you've noticed this, but life goes by very, very quickly, doesn't it? You know, when you're, when you're a teenager and you're like these kids here doing their Christian development program from Saks in year nine, and life, it goes on forever. And, and then you blink and it's gone. And, and what have we done? How have we lived? What's our legacy? How do you make sense of it with all the challenges and the difficulties and the complexities? So... Uh, Ephesians 3, uh, this little passage from Scripture, gives us a vision of what, what the Apostle Paul longs for for the Christian community in Ephesus that he's writing to these early Christians. And, and as I read it and thought about it, it's, a, it's this incredibly powerful picture for you and for me of what, what our lives could be like. What, what God might want for you, what God might want for me. And so I'm hoping this will help us recalibrate and go, oh, is, this, is there something in this for us? So what do we see? Well, the first thing we see, a truly great life, uh, to live well in this world, is that we need uh, this extraordinary thing, right? We need to be strengthened with spirit power in our inner beings. So what does that mean? Like if you want to live a great life, you need to know that, that, that you need power to do this. 
You say, well, what's the power? What's the purpose? What's the point? Why do I need this? Well, and, and why? what does it mean to have um, Christ dwelling in our hearts? Because this is the point of it all, right? That, that, that we need power, we need the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that, Messiah Jesus is going to dwell in your heart. Now, have you ever thought about that? What the heck does that mean? We, we throw this language around a lot, don't we, if you've been in the church for a while. Well, you need, to, you, need to have, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. I did anatomy at medical school, and I dissected a cadaver. And, and let me tell you, when we, when we opened up the chest cavity and we dissected the heart, there was no door which you could open up and into which you could peer and find, oh, there's the Jesus shape hole. It, it's, it's clearly not a literal comment. So what is it? Well, to understand it, you've got to understand the ancient Near East and the way uh, people in the ancient world at the time that this was written understood how idols worked, how little gods worked. So in the world that Paul was writing... There were little gods, what the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for these is Elohim, little gods for everything. There was a god of fertility, there was a god of love, there was a god of power, there was a god of war, there was a god of commerce, there were gods of villages, gods of countries, gods of cities. And what you would do with these various gods is you would set up images or uh, little carved representations of these gods. Now we think as sophisticated 21st century people, that it's very primitive to bow down and worship a carved statue. Well, that's not what people were doing. Because once you'd carved your, say, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and you've, you've got your Aphrodite stat statue there, then the historians tell us you would have a, uh, a mouth-opening ceremony where you would gather around your statue and you would go through a ceremony to open the mouth of the statue so the spirit, the Elohim, the god of Aphrodite or whatever, might actually come in and indwell that statue. So you'd have a mouth-opening ceremony, the god would come into the statue, and then you would come and pray to the god who is residing in the statue. That's how it worked. Now, the Bible story says, over all these gods, these Elohim, there is one God above all gods, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this God is now present in the world, not in carved statues who bear his image, but in living statues, living image bearers, you and me, God's plan to be present in the world, the point of connection now between divinity and humanity is humanity itself. So we now, in the worldview of the first century, are like the little statues of Aphrodite and Eros and all the other gods, and we are now the images, the bearers of God, and what the Bible then says is we need to be filled with God. The Spirit of God comes into us so that, like the other gods, we can be a point of connection. Those who don't yet know the one true God, those who don't yet know Yahweh, can come to us. And being full of this God, we can then 
bring the rule, the power, the victory of this God over the other gods into this world. So we need God. We need to be filled. We need, we need Christ himself to reside in us. And we need strength and power because being a follower of Jesus, being full of God in this sense, being connected to God in this way, is not in the first instance about living a, uh, a happy, self-actualized life of personal religious piety, as good as that is. This is not in the first instance just about you and me having a great experience of God ourselves. I mean, it is that, but more significantly than that, what it is to be an imager of God, to have Christ dwell in us, to be full of God in this way in the New Testament, was to be caught up and enrolled in God's great battle against evil and injustice and death itself. So you need power because it's a battle. There are so many things pushing upon us that make it impossible to believe that love will triumph over hate, that life will triumph over death, that justice will triumph over injustice. And the Creator God, Yahweh's plan for victory was to live and die and rise again in His Son and then recruit a people to Himself who would take that life and death resurrection victory of Jesus and push it out into the world through our suffering service through our sacrifice, through our loyalty to Jesus. And that is hard, isn't it? Like, let me ask you this. How many of you find it really easy to forgive people? Hands up if you, like someone's really treated you abominably, and you just find it easy to forgive them, like deeply, truly, and be reconciled. Anyone find it really easy to forgive? I, I don't see a hand. We feel psychologically quite safe here. so Because it's not. It's incredibly hard to forgive. Now, there are particular personality types, and our own brokenness and need to be loved and accepted and fear of rejection will often lead us into a false forgiveness, a faux forgiveness. Of course I forgive you. Of course it's fine. We're very quick to jump to that because we want people to keep on liking us. But deep in our hearts, actually, there's a deep root of bitterness and unforgiveness because, because in the core of the human heart, we are far more inclined to the God of vengeance and the God of self-protection, and the God of getting our own way in the world than we are to the God of Jesus who says, I will suffer and die for those who do evil against me. That's hard, eh? Like it's, it's hard to know how to live for Jesus, not just, not just to do it, but even to know what to do. Like, what does it actually mean to live a great life and be a follower of Jesus, to be full of Christ? Like, it's complicated, this world, isn't it? It's really complicated. How do you even know how to act? Um, what would you do if Christian Porter came to take communion this morning? And the ABC journos who wrote about him. And, and what, do you, what do you think about the woman who made the allegations, eh? 
and who's now tragically uh, died by suicide. And you go, like, how do you, how do you even start to think about that? And, and where's, the, where's justice in that? And where's right or wrong? And, and, and then here's the thing. How do you get along with people who have views that are diametrically opposed to yours on issues like that and many others? It's really hard, isn't it? So to, to, to bear witness to Jesus, to be full of Christ, this is hard. And it's a battle, Right? And so the Bible says we need strength with power. We need spiritual transformation and power in our inner being. And this really, this is critical to understand, right? Christianity is not a religion of external triumph. We're not about, we're not about polishing up our externals. We're not about being better than other people. We're not about being richer than other people and happier than other people and more moral than other people and more religious than other people. Like, let me tell you this. From the core of my being, I, I, I believe this is central to Scripture, and I've seen it to be true more and more and more and more as I get older. God is spectacularly disinterested in our external appearances. He doesn't, he doesn't care how smart you are. He doesn't care how much you earn. He doesn't care how white you are or how black you are or how male you are or how female you are. Or, you know, like, those are, I mean, at one level, yes, he cares because he's made us and we're all precious and blah, blah, blah. But you know what I mean? Like, at the core, that's not what matters to God. What matters to God, because it's what matters, what's at the essence of our humanity is, is our inner beings, like our hearts. And that's hard for us religious folk to understand because uh, we, we very, like there's something in every human heart that says it's much easier to control the external things about us. And, and in a community like this, we've done pretty well at that. Like you don't live in this area and come to a church like this unless in the, uh, in the hierarchy of the city of Sydney, you've managed to succeed at some substantial level in managing the externalities of life. Like, you just don't get to be here. And so it can be really hard then to hear that, that actually a truly great life, where the power really needs to be found, is in our hearts, because Jesus is so clear that you can be incredibly religious, incredibly polished on the outside, but, but actually, to quote Jesus, you're a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. <laughs> you polish the cup on the outside, but inside it's a filthy mess. And what God says is, I want to give you power on the inside so that at the core of your being, you can love, you can forgive, you can serve, you can give. You can love justice and mercy. You can, you can push back the chaos and the darkness and the injustice f that's in your own heart. And as you do that, we can work together so that from the inside we live in this world in the way of Jesus and we participate in his battle against all that is wrong in this world. So we need to be strengthened from the inside because it's a battle. And, and then because... Then he says, well, here's the second thing. <laughs> 
because he's Christian, and lest, lest we forget, lest we think suddenly a, a call to arms is a call to some kind of triumphalism or nationalism. He says, you know what the, the core thing you need in your inner being is? You need love. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, we, we take it for granted, you know, we, because we've, we're the product of 2,000 years of this kind of teaching culturally, we take it for granted that love is a virtue that is important to have, and in fact, possibly the most important virtue. Uh, let me tell you, when this was written, this was crazy talk. I mean, what mattered in the ancient world was honor, status, power, not love. Like, love was not considered important as a, as a virtue for living a great life. In the Greek world, you despised weakness, right? Women were weak, so they had less value than men. Baby girls were weak, so it was quite okay to, to kill them at birth if you had enough girls because they were weak and they didn't matter, right? The elderly were weak and a drag on society, and uh, there was a lack of honor, so you'd drive them out and they could just die by themselves. 2,000 years on, we think it's normal to think that love really matters, right? I mean, I find it very interesting that um, the, uh, the LGBTI movement is really at its heart deeply Christian. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we might disagree about the particular sexual ethics that are advocated, but this idea that everyone is worthy of love and acceptance like, you don't get that any place other than Jesus in the history of ideas. And you go, yes, that's so wonderful. Now, of course, Jesus has a lot more to say about life than just that, but that's at the heart. I find it so ironic and so sad then that we, people don't recognize that, that even that community stands on a, on a, they're standing on a branch who's connected into Jesus, even though they don't recognize it, or maybe some don't. So the, the heart of all of this is love, and, and, there's, and we need power. And it's not just any kind of love. It's the love of Christ. And we need power to know this. this is, I found this fascinating. I don't know if you, if you have a look at this. Paul prays that we might be where, where everything about us is established in love. And then we need power to grasp how much Christ loves us. Okay, so, don't we? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Um, I, I find it interesting. Have you ever wondered? Like you read that and you go, how, how easy is it to believe that Jesus Christ really loves you? According to the scripture, that is not an easy thing to believe. 
again, we give it lip service, don't we? We say, oh, of course, yeah, it's, it just rolls off. Yeah, of course Jesus loves me. Of course Christ loves me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, uh, how do I know what I really believe? Well, I look at how I behave, okay? I know, what I, I, I know what I really believe. I only know what I really believe to be true when I examine my behavior. Now, when I examine my behavior, what does it tell me about how much I believe in the love of Jesus Christ? It tells me I find it very hard to believe that Jesus loves me. And you say, but how is that, Mark? I look at you and you're a absolutely stunning example of Christian rectitude and morality. You're professionally religious after all. You can't possibly struggle. I say, no, no. You shouldn't laugh that loudly, people. <laughs> say, no, because you know what? If I really believed that Jesus loved me, and only as the powerful God above all gods, only ever had my best interests at heart, I would never worry about anything, would I? but I worry. I would never trust money to buy me security because Jesus is my security, but oh, I worry about money, and I trust money. And if I believed that Jesus loved me, I would never struggle with lust because I would know that the adrenaline and dopamine rush of lust is nothing compared to the overwhelming eternal love of Jesus and his plan for my life. And if I knew that Jesus loved me, I would never self-medicate with workaholism or alcoholism or any of the other isms that I have because I would trust that the pain and the brokenness and the scars and the wounds that I carry, these will be and are being healed by Jesus, and I'm safe in his hands. And if I knew that Jesus loved me, I wouldn't have to I wouldn't have to fight to make my life work. I wouldn't hold grudges, I wouldn't be bitter. I'd never struggle to get along with Margot and the kids and the dog. <laughs> Cuz I, I so when I examine my behavior, and I want to suggest when you examine your behavior, you will discover that it's very, very, very hard to actually believe that Jesus Christ loves you. And that's why Paul says we need to pray for power to grasp this. Now, if I work the other way, one of the reasons I don't want power to grasp this is I'm scared of letting go <laughs> I kind of like the things that I do when I live without Jesus. But I need power to be set free from this. And then you know what happens? I am going to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Uh, another way of putting this is I'm going to be, be like God. I'm going to be so full of God. I'm going to be full of God. The Bible elsewhere says that Jesus Christ is the very fullness of God himself. So another way of saying this last point is... If, I, if, if I'm full, if Christ dwells in my heart by faith, that's the, he's, he's, I've invited him in. He's, you know, I'm, I'm, I've signed up for his battle, and now 
I've got power to grasp His love, and that's, that's working out in my life, then the final thing that will happen is I'm going to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. The goal of our church is to produce many Christs. That's what C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity. The goal of the local church, of the church, it, every, no other institution in the world has this task. Our task is to take people who worship other gods and bring them into this community and send them out Christ-like, full to the measure of all the fullness of God. So you want to know what it is to live a truly great life? Well, it's to become like Christ. Actually be able to live like Jesus Christ. To live your life in the way that Jesus would live were he living your life in your place. To love like him, to serve like him, to, to grapple with all the complexities of your life in the way that Jesus would were he living in your place. That's what a great life is about. And what's wonderful about that is that um, everything helps us in that, right? If you start to understand that, that in the end, the thing that your life is about is becoming like Christ, then anything and everything that happens to you can be part of the process of that transformation, you get a promotion and you make lots of money. Well, now you, have to, now you have to grapple with, how do I live like Christ when I have wealth? What do I do with that? How do I guard my heart from wealth? Now you lose your job and you struggle with unemployment and your whole identity has collapsed because you don't have work. Well, now you have to go, how do I trust Christ with my unemployment or my underemployment? And my identity can't come from my work, so what does that mean? Now you're in really good health. You say, oh, it's fantastic. I don't have an ache or a pain in my body, and it's just fantastic. Well, how do I live for Jesus when things are going well for me physically? How do I steward my health to make a difference? Now you get a cancer diagnosis, and you're going to die pretty soon. And unlike most of us, there's a, you, you kind of know it's maybe months away, and you go, okay, so now how do I die like Christ? No matter what happens in our lives, everything can be reframed and re-experienced as an opportunity to become more Christ-like. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, many years ago, I was doing a master's degree in organization dynamics, systems psychodynamics of organizations at RMIT down in Melbourne, and uh, my thesis was on the dynamics psychodynamics of the, the role of the, the rector, the pastor in a, in a new church plant. And I was working with my supervisor, who's a very, very brilliant man uh, and phenomenally insightful, not Christian, but understands all the Christian stories. And our, our, our kind of the primary task of our church, as any church, I said to him, was uh, to help people become more Christ-like. And he said to me, no wonder there are difficulties in your church because who would want to be Christ-like? Like, it's awful. Like, what happened to Jesus? He got himself crucified. He suffered, he was rejected, and he died alone. And he said, and Mark, no wonder, you're asking people to sign up to become Christ-like. And I'm like, hmm. Let's change our mission to, you can have a great life right now. <laughs> no, but, that's tr but you see, it's true. It's hard. But we know on the other side of the 
death is resurrection and there is glory. So it's an invitation to a life of adventure and of challenge and of suffering and of death, but a life that is surely heading towards glory. And there's no better way to live and there is no better way to die. So that's what a truly great life is. And that's what we hear about as a church. And it's a wonderful adventure, and it's terrifying, and it's awful, and I want it, and I don't want it, but more than anything, I want it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fill us uh, with your own being from the inside out so that we can live for you, and we can represent you in the world and fight for you in the world and triumph with love. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I threw out a lot at you. We're going to do a bit of Q&A now before the kids come in. Cheers.